0: You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning. He is worthy. Amen. Lord, uh, thank you for receiving our praise. We love you. Thank you for another day of of bios, a physical life of Zoe, spiritual life, and this amazing kingdom that we are part of, this eternal kingdom. Thank you for the amazing hope of heaven that we have. Thank you for your word this morning that is able to bring us the encouragement that we need, the direction that we need, the redirection that we need, the conviction that we need, the hope that we need. Thank you that we can gather with people who recognize supreme truth as you, Jesus. Thank you for the gathering of people that recognize supreme authority that you are God and we are not. That your word is the absolute, inspired, inerrant, eternal word of God. And as we're going to open it and read it, you are going to speak to us. So Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts, your way with this group, your way with the church. For those that would gather here or online that just need a touch from you, may we encounter you in a very real way as you speak to us through your word. For those that aren't saved, we pray that Today would be the day that they would give their life to you. They would humble themselves before you and and just accept you as their personal Lord uh, and Savior. So bless this time. Bless our time in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Why don't you say hello to like three or four people around next to you and then find a seat. Today we are going to have a Bible study. We're going to go through some Bible. So turn your Bibles over to Acts chapter uh, 13. <clears throat> we're going to pick up in around verse 14, so just kind of start looking that way. And if you guys go quick enough today, we're going to finish this chapter. So... Um, we have been following the first uh, missionary journey that uh, began in the city of Antioch in Syria, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were there for a year preaching the word of God. The Holy Spirit said, it's time, I'm going to send you out. They took uh, John Mark with them, which was Barnabas's nephew, um, and they would, they would head right off the, um, the coast uh, to an island called Cyprus, and there the team arrives at the, the port city of uh, uh, Salamis. there. They're preaching the word of God in, in synagogues, and the result was that the governor of Cyprus, Sergios Paulos, was astonished at the, the teaching and the preaching and gave his life to the Lord. He was saved. And we joked about that. Wouldn't that be cool if our governor had the same experience last week? You guys remember that? Yes? Okay. Um, and then the, the, uh, the sorcerer, the, the governor's sorcerer, uh, Elamus, God put him in his place and he was judged with blindness. Um, the next stop was Perga in Pamphylia. That's the region of Galatia. That was about a 200-mile boat ride. And as they got there, uh, they didn't preach that first time through there, but they would on the way back. We'll get to that in the next few chapters. But uh, we noted that John Mark left them. We gave some comments about John Mark. We'll circle back and talk about John Mark in chapter 15. So we'll wait till we get there to talk more about him. But we move to the next stop in verse 14, where it says, When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. so this is not the Antioch in Syria. Uh, this is, which would be north, the northern, like you have Israel, then kind of keep going up north where Syria reaches uh, the Mediterranean. It's it's not that uh, Antioch. It's a different Antioch, which would be uh, more in what we would see as the modern day Turkey in that region. Um, they 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 would have sailed 200 miles from Cyprus to Pamphylia, but now they're on land and they're going to travel about a hundred miles towards, uh, towards Turkey. Um, and as they do, it's a very rugged area. A lot of mountains, a lot of, uh, heavily, you know, just deep valleys. Um, Paul talked about even in the, in history, a lot of the secular writers talked about that being a very dangerous area. Paul talked in second Corinthians chapter 11, when he was talking about ministry journeys, he, uh, Noted in verse 26, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers. And uh, they think that maybe he's referring to this particular part of his first missionary journey in this particular area. But when when Paul and Barnabas arrive, they, they head for the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath day. They, they sit down. In a synagogue, Paul would have found a very ready audience that would have been interested in hearing the word Um, as Paul would have traveled. um, You know, when you go to a synagogue, there was uh, part of the service where they would let guests that taught or teachers or rabbis, they would give them a place to to speak on whatever word was being read uh, in that particular setting. Um, So notice in verse 15, it says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And then Paul stood up, motions with his hand, and says, and he begins to talk. And notice what he says. Men of Israel, and you who fear God. Listen up. That would be a good way to start any Bible study, don't you think? Men and women of Lahabra. And Fullerton and La Mirada and whatever else. You who fear God, listen up. You who are online, which camera is, it? listen up. You who fear God in your homes, you who fear God that are driving around listening to this Bible study on your app, listen up. Paul here begins his first recorded sermon. He's already preached in, in Damascus immediately following his conversion. We don't have the record of what he, he preached, though. He preached during his three years in Arabia when he was in the Arabian desert, and alluded to that in Galatians chapter one. But we don't have the, re, the record of the record, excuse me, of those sermons. He preached while he was serving as a, a pastor. He was it says that he taught for a whole year there in Antioch in Syria, but we don't have the record, or the record, excuse me again, of those sermons, of those times that he taught. Paul had said in his epistles several times that preaching the gospel was the very reason that God had called him. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, he would say, for Christ did not send me to the baptize. Not that baptism was important. He's just talking about the, what God had sent him to do. But to preach the gospel. And not with wisdom of words. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He's just saying the importance of God's word. Preaching the cross using the word of God. Sharing the gospel. In Romans 15, 20, Paul said that he made it his Aim to preach the gospel. In Ephesians 3, Paul was talking about the purpose of his ministry. And he said, to me who am less than the least of the saints, this was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of For necessity is laid upon me, yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. We noted that that, that preaching the word, teaching the word, was like really a top priority for the early church. Over 40 times in the, the book of Acts, we're going to see an emphasis on just that, You could trace all the conversions in the New Testament back to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. You could trace the planting and the establishing of churches back to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. You could trace all the maturing of faith in the early church back to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. You could trace the maturing of believers, the equipping of believers, to be believers, to be saints, to be the church, back to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Paul would even say in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gave to the church pastors and teachers. Then he would go on to say, for the equipping of the saints. Then he would also say, in verse 14, so that we would no longer... Be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So you could say that the, the course, the reset in people's lives that were following weird doctrines and weird philosophies, and now lining them up with the one true living God and knowing who he was and giving their life to him and beginning to walk with him and now be equipped to be used by him. All of that would go back to their being taught the word of God. It's fascinating. You can trace the the unifying of a divided people back to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. You You could trace the proper understanding of marriage and the proper function of marriage. Back to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. You could could trace the proper understanding of the family unit and the proper function of the family unit in the early church back to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. A proper understanding of God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit... Back to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. A proper understanding of sin and the consequences of sin. You could trace that back to their being taught the word of God. A proper understanding of of salvation and the benefits of salvation. You could trace the proper understanding of how to walk with God. You could trace a proper understanding of eternity and heaven and hell. All back to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Recently, I was reading an article about the state of the church. I'm, I'm curious in some of the data out there now that we've kind of been through the last couple of years that we've been through, and they're starting to, to do some research right now and poll churches and whatnot across our nation right now. But let me give you some of this data based on what we're learning right here about the importance of the preaching and teaching of God's word. Number one, Nine out of ten American homes have at least one Bible in them. In this same poll, most believe that they need guidance that is found in God's Word. Most want to line up their lives with God's Word. But in that same pool of people, only 20%, and these are Christians that attend church, Only 20% read it, the Word of God, every day. 40% read the Bible once a week. And 40% of them read the Bible once a month. Just an interesting stat. Born-again Christians are one-third of America's population, about 33%. Among the 180 million adults who say they are Christians in America, listen... Less than one out of ten have a biblical world view. Now again, we just case and pointed over and over what the early church believed. You would say they had a biblical world view. Their view of marriage was based on the word of God. Their their view of family was based on the word of God. Their, Their view of the world would have been based on the word of God. You go through the New Testament, you're like, wow, they have a biblical world view. But that's if you are taught the Word of God. That's if you're lining yourself up with the Word of God. We practice what we believe, and we believe what we are taught. In America, Christians being interviewed, less than one out of ten 9% 9% has this, you know, a biblical worldview. That's scary. So there's a huge mega, mega need for churches to be teaching and preaching the word of God. And sadly, in an age where God's word is not being picked up as it should be in the home, it's also not being preached enough in the church i don't believe we would have these stats if that was the case amos eight eleven says behold the days are coming says the lord god that i will send a famine on the land not a famine of bread not a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the lord they shall wander from the sea to sea and from the north to the east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but it, it shall not be found. In the letters that Paul is writing to Timothy, he talks about just that. In the end times, there's going to be this thing that will mark you know, the church. And it's going to say they have itching ears. And they, the picture of that is that Tell me what I want, not what I need. And they're going to be heaping up teachers, like, woo. those are the kind of teachers that we want. Tell me what I want to hear, not what I need to hear. And sadly, there's, there's, there's a famine, I believe, of God's word in the land that is producing the stats that we see and the world that we see in that Barna study on church attendance, it said churches that held online services during 2020 and 2021, they grew. They grew by an average of 20%. Yeah, that's a cool thing. So God used the online service. If you're still listening on online or using that somewhat frequently or inconsistently or forever, it, it's a great tool. God's using that. In 2022 now, in-person attendance nationally is 36 to 60 percent of what it was pre-COVID. That's not the case with our Sundays. We're seeing seats filling up most weeks with people that are hungry for God's Word and fellowship. Our midweek Bible study, if you're not one that comes to that, that's a that's a bit of a different story. Our Our our, our staying faithful to teach the Word of God follows the trends of the book of Acts, both Sundays and Wednesdays. Our church response to a midweek teaching, either online or in person, follows more along the trends of our nation. There's a change in the church. There's a change in people's priorities. There just is. This is not a a get-it-together thing. This is just a... This is who we are today. What's the Lord want to do with that? I love you guys enough to share the truth about these assessments of the church. But Bible teaching churches such as ours are not quantity driven, but quality driven. The focus on spiritual growth is what it's all about not numeric growth we want to see people connect with Jesus and his word and with one another in that same study it says that most people 76% of the people in that study said that sermons based on scripture and thus related to their life is what mattered most and that's a good report 76% of the people like if you just took an average of Church-going people today are going, what really matters most to me is that I'm being taught the Word of God in a way that it applies to my life. That's huge. Average length of today's sermons, I thought this was an interesting stat, and then we'll move on. It was 37 minutes. The shortest was Catholics. Their sermons are 14 minutes. The longest average was the evangelicals at 39 minutes, and then there was the exception of the rule of Calvary La Habra at 59 minutes. (laughs) Now. That will probably shorten as I'm getting older, okay? Just <laughs> The church was born on on Pentecost. As Peter was preaching the word. Over and over in Jerusalem, Peter and others were preaching the word. The gospel spread to Samaria through Philip preaching the word. Now we see Paul and Barnabas up north preaching the word on their first missionary journey, preaching the word. In verse 15, we join this church service in a synagogue which would have began with the reading of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. From there, they would have had a time of prayer. Then the reading of the law and the prophets. Then came the teaching, usually based on whatever scripture the week was noted to read. At this point, the rulers of the synagogue recognize Paul and Barnabas, and they're like, hey, if you have a word of exhortation, like you want to break down what we've been reading, say on. Paul stands up, he motions with his hand, like to get get everybody's attention. Hey, hey, you know, listen up. It's that kind of a thing. Men of Israel, he's addressing the Jews who are present and you who fear God. That might refer to everybody there or even the Gentile proselytes. Paul commanded them to listen because he was about to say and give the most important message they would ever hear. And Paul's message as we go through this in verse in chapter 13, it's very, very similar to Stephen's message right before he was stoned by the religious leaders, Paul being one of them back then, in chapter 7. And, 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 and Stephen's whole message was kind of going through their history, the history of Israel, and then eventually getting to Jesus, and they just go crazy and they stone him to death. And I'm sure that as he was there, he's thinking nobody is listening because they're picking up rocks, they're getting closer, and nobody is listening. And it's funny because this guy who was consenting to his death is going to be repeating 13 to 14 years later the very things that Stephen said. I wonder how far this sermon that God prepared in my heart will live on through you to others. Stephen probably had no idea what was about to happen, but here is Paul now, converted. God's just really had a reset with him for three years in Arabia, and he's been just now preaching and teaching God's word. People have been getting saved. And now here he is, and he's gonna say probably things that just so were embedded in his heart when he looked at Stephen In Paul's day, many philosophers, they looked at history in a very weird way because Paul is going to take everybody through history. He's going to start back and he's going to kind of recount a few things because in Paul's heart, he knows that history is is going in a direction. But in in Paul's day, the philosophers didn't believe that. They They didn't teach that. They believe that life is merely a a succession of sunrises and sunsets. A meaningless series of years that head nowhere. And viewing history as purposeless, it appeals to sinful people because it grants them the freedom to do as they want with no fear of accountability to a holy, righteous God. And so we remove God from our history and we just define history as meaningless and purposeless. But Paul here is saying, history is going somewhere. And everyone in Paul's audience was about to hear just where history is headed. And so the first thing he does is he brings God into the picture. God's providential care for the nation of Israel into the picture. You can't take God out of that. Yeah, there's a lot of bad things in history because history is about unredeemed people, (laughs) sinful people. And and now bring God into that. And what what is God's plan with those people? And where is he going with this plan for his people? So he says in verse 17, God chose the fathers of this great nation. The God of this people, Israel, chose our, our father. And the whole idea is that, look at this is God's deal. God is in absolute control of history. It's his slash story. He sovereignly chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and, and Joseph, the fathers of these amazing nations. He made a covenant with them. In verse 17, after the age of these great patriarchs, God took care of the people during their time of bondage in the land of Egypt. He delivered them with his power and he brought them out. He chose for himself from the family of Abraham and he he redeemed them and he brought them out from Egypt is what, what Paul's saying. And then verse 18, and for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways of rebellion in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed the land to them by allotment. Now he is moving fast through history here. But these are key, significant points in history. After the exodus, God continued to care for the nation. He's just showing God's hand in history. He brought them into the wilderness. He brought them to Mount Sinai. When he liberated them from Egypt, he graciously entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. This is where They would become his people. This is where he would become their God as a token of that promise and of that covenant. God gave them the tabernacle and it was just this tent in which he would dwell. He would be with them. I'm your God. You're my people. So the idea is God supernaturally liberated them from from Egypt. And as you go through the book of Exodus, obviously if we were like, let's just look at what, Paul's talking about, we'd be here for, for all week. But, but he, through, that, through the 10 plagues, those were supernatural evidences that God was at work on behalf of his people. The final plague, the death of the firstborn, the Egyptians, Pharaoh's like, get out of here. God did that. And they loaded them up with all of their gold, and their jewelry and everything, said, never come back. Do not let the gate hit you on the way out. But God supernaturally led them as well. We all know the story by the the pillar of fire by day and by the cloud, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And and God supernaturally sustained them. He gave them manna. He, He gave them meat, the quail. He gave them water from the rock. But Paul says in all of that, God had to put up with their ways in the wilderness. He just reminds them. Maybe as a way to kind of humble the crowd a little bit. You know, we as God's people who kind of stick out our chest and think that, you know, we've got it so together as Paul used to, You have got to remember that God has put up with some of our ways. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Rebellious ways? Amen. You know, following their liberation, do you remember what they were saying at the Red Sea? When Pharaoh's army was behind them and the Red Sea was before them and mountains on both sides of them in, in Exodus 14, 11, They're like, hey, because there wasn't enough graves in Egypt, did you bring us out here? I don't know. If I was Moses, I probably would have been pretty bummed out right about then. You've got to be kidding me. You know how many times I went to that guy on your behalf? And now we're here. He's After 400 years, we're free. And this is what you've got to say? Would it be better for us to serve the Egyptians? You know, three days after that, three days after God parts the Red Sea, they walk through on dry ground. They come to this place called Mara. And there's this big body of water. It is the wilderness. They're thirsty. And they're like, the water is, it's bitter. And they began to complain. I know that's not like any of us, but they began to complain. And God's like, see the tree over there? Yeah, take that, that tree and throw that into that water. And that tree becomes a picture of the cross and the sweetness that salvation brings and the life that it brings and all of that. And the waters are made sweet. In chapter 17, they complained about water again as they were at Rephidim camping out and God supernaturally provided water out of a rock. God gave them manna to eat. Enough to sustain them. But you read through the book of Numbers, you get to chapter 11, you're like, man, these people began to complain. You know, who will give us meat? We want meat to eat. And they begin to say, remember the fish in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But, But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing to eat except this supernatural stuff that God supplies every day. You ever become so, I don't know, discontent that you just need something else that's not spiritual and it's not eternal? That was them. God's doing so many amazing things for them and they're just like, yeah, but we need this. Don't give us what we need. Give us what we want. Exodus 32, you guys remember as they were camped out at Mount Sinai, Moses took a little bit long one day and they're like, all right, bring all the gold and all the jewelry, they melt it down and they form a calf. And you know what they, they, they said about that calf? This is our God, the one who brought us out of Egypt. There was serious judgment on that day, by the way. For 40 years, God put up their ways in the wilderness. Every day was a patience building day for God. But God cared for his people. This is the point. God was in this. They would have been done, toast. But God supernaturally cared for them. He is history. He is the one that is moving them forward. He's got a plan. In spite of their rebellion and, 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 and all, he, he had a role for them in his ultimate plan of redemption. So after putting up with them and guiding them and feeding them and all that for 40 years, he brought them to a place and he... He finally brought them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. This is what we've been studying on, on Wednesday nights. I believe there's some of the, the most necessary studies we've been in in a couple of years, the book of Joshua. Once they crossed the Jordan, they entered into the promised land. It says they destroyed seven nations. We've been going through those wars, beginning in chapter five, all the way to chapter 12 the different kings and areas that were conquered and the message in all of those campaigns was very clear God was the one giving you victory God was the one advancing you and moving forward moving you forward in history then it says in verse 19, then, then God distributed their, their land to them by allotment. And I wish we had time to get into that, what we studied last week, because we studied the first allotment of land, and it was to the tribe of Judah, and Caleb was the one that, that Joshua called forward. And when, when Caleb came forward, and they were like, you know, they, they, they would take lots out of jars to decide like the territory and whatnot, Caleb it goes, Joshua, hold on remember remember like when we were back at kadesh barnea remember what god said remember when we went in for 40 days and we're talking 45 years earlier and you and i were part of a team of 12 spies and we came back after 40 days we had this big old cluster of grapes and figs and pomegranates and everything and we told everybody that this is amazing it's just the kind of land that god said it was And we're like, let's go. And the other 10 spies, just 10 of them, were like, no, 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 no. We can't because the Anakim, the giants, and the walls are too big. And and we're like grasshoppers and they'll squash us. Remember that? Remember that, Joshua? Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, remember? Do you remember that 2.5 million people were influenced by 10 negative reports? And you and I, God said through Moses, because of our faith, will one day, because we held on to the promises of God, the word of God, we heard it, we believed it, and we continued to stand on it, that, that he says one day you'll actually be in that land. And, and, and Joshua would have been going, oh, yeah, wow. He says, well, I'm 85 years old right now, and God has fulfilled his word. And you know what He said, Give me the mountains. Give me the very land that was inhabited by the most, surfer language, gnarly enemy, by the giants. Give me the part of the land that all of the other 10 spies looked at and said, we can't, give it to me now at 85. That's what the word of God does if you continue to as he says. God brought us here because I wholly followed the Lord. That's what he said. And that's that's the whole point, you know, Paul's bringing this out. Like look at God's got a plan. Look at this. Even Caleb recognized that plan and Joshua recognized that plan and there they were in the land. After that he gave them judges in verse 20. For about 450 years. Now, we're moving fast in history until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. they going to the monarch years. We want, to, we want to be like all the other nations. They have, like, really cool kings. Crown thing, the robe thing, and the throne thing, and the, you know, kingdom thing. We, we you know, it's, it's just a cool, it's a theocracy. We're governed by God. But, you know, we'd like to have a monarchy. So God says, all right, it's going to cost you, though. But here's Saul. That was their choice, the people's choice, a man of Kish. And he would, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, he would rule for 40 years. But Saul had heart problems, not the muscle. He just, 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 he had issues, pride and... And, and, and there was just the removing of him as king because of that. And when God removed him, he raised up for them David as king to whom also he gave testimony. Now, again, Paul's going somewhere. He's walking through chronology and, and their history and key people that all of these Jews would have known God's in this. God has a plan. It's his story. It's moving forward. He gets to David now, the son of Jesse, a man who God said has a heart after me who will do my will. So he goes through all of this this history, and David, of course, far from a perfect man, but he was a man who, who... saw his sin for what it was and repented of it. And he just, God looked at him and goes, he just had a pure heart. He had a, he, was, he had a heart after me. He loved me and he sought me. And so once he gets to David here in this message, he begins to turn and he begins to bring it home. Verse 23, from this man see, David, according to the promise, according to God's word, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John, speaking of John the Baptist, has first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people in Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not he, I'm not the Messiah, but behold, there is one who comes after me. Remember John was saying this, I'm not even worthy, like, to loose his sandals. So he brings them to, like, their present time. Okay, we've talked about history beginning all the way back and we've moved forward and we've come from David to our present time and we're following the line, the lineage of David to a specific person. Our history moves not so much towards a specific place, but it moves towards a specific person. A person from David's seed, an offspring of David, whom God would raise up for us. He's talking about the promised Messiah. Historically and prophetically, Jesus was the offspring of David. He was the descendant of David. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, God says behold the days are coming says the Lord that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness a king the case capitalized shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth in 2 Samuel chapter 7 12 through 13 God said to David when your days are fulfilled when you die and you rest with your fathers I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Hmm, an eternal kingdom. Hmm. Obviously, as we read through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, we see David in his line. I'm going to go home and read that, 1 through 17. You'll be like, oh, yeah, there it is. There's David, and we've all the line from David. There's Jesus, his parents. There's Jesus. Also, the Jews knew that a prophet would announce the Messiah's coming beforehand. Malachi 3.1, God said of him, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And Paul identifies that messenger here as well, just showing the accuracy of God's word in fulfilling the promise of God to bring forth the Messiah, a Savior. It's John the Baptist in verse. He's the forerunner. Remember when, when John was baptizing out in the Judean wilderness? I always love being on our tours out there. And we get close to where we believe John would have left Jerusalem proper and would have went towards the the Jordan River and baptized, and we're like, somewhere out here, John was way out there, and you're pointing into this barren land. It's just like you, you know, people in the bus are like, we're not camping out here, are we, Lance? No, it's barren out there. And like, yeah, but somewhere over here there were the Jordan River, you don't see the Jordan River because there's lush, you know, foliage around it. You could fall in on the other side's Jordan. Like, somewhere around here is where John was out here, and and then we will, we'll point up to, to Jerusalem, which is really still far away. And masses of crowds would go out there and repent, and John would baptize them. And so it was just kind of a a common thing for people to go, he must be the Messiah. What a profound thing that's happening here. No, he was was not the Messiah, and he was telling everybody I'm not the Messiah. But one day the Messiah showed up, In John's Gospel chapter 1, as John's out there baptizing, he's like, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he baptizes his, his cousin. Paul reaches this very important point in his sermon. And you can see him pause to emphasize it. Verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Again, all of you Jews and probably you Gentiles that are now here. You've been converted into Judaism and you, you just fear God. To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, which we would have read today, he would have been alluding to, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from a tree and they laid him in a tomb. Now, as these, the ruler of the synagogue and the Jews that were there and the the converted Gentiles that are now attending synagogue now, they are being taught the word of God and taught the word of God. They're reading the prophets. They're learning about what the the word of God has to say about the Messiah. Paul looks at them and he's like, you know, like the prophets talked about the Messiah. He's pointing this to Jesus and, the, and, it, and it even talks about, the prophets talk about how he would be rejected. And you guys are the ones. It happened like on our watch. <laughs> Paul was, part. it happened on our watch. That's the idea. Even as we read these things, we're not connecting the dots. It's happened. He's here. He was rejected. He was crucified. He was put on a tree. He was put to death. Just as the scriptures said, God has kept his promise. All of our history from that point that I've talked about leads up to this person. And our leaders, many of them failed to see this. That's not good. It's because of the hardness of their hearts, he says there in verse 27. But the very fact that you all have failed to recognize or receive him also fulfills those prophecies. It didn't just say he was coming. It talked about that we would reject him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, foresaw the Messiah, that he would be despised and forsaken of men. They hated Jesus without a cause so that even though they found no grounds for putting him to death, Paul's looking at him. They still asked Pilate that he would be executed. They unwittingly fulfilled prophecies. Psalm 69, verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head, speaking of the Messiah on the cross. The way he died fulfilled numerous, numerous. Bible prophecies. The Messiah would be a reproach, one at whom the people would wag their heads. Psalm 109, 25, fulfilled, Matthew chapter 27. The crowds at the crucifixion site would stare at him. Psalm 22, fulfilled, Luke 23. At the execution, the executioners would divide their clothing among themselves by lot, Psalm twenty-two eighteen. 18. Fulfilled John 19, 23 and 24. Psalm sixty nine twenty one predicted that he would be given vinegar and gall for his thirst. Fulfilled Matthew 27, 34. Jesus cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In, Psalm, in, in Matthew 27, verse 46. That's the fulfillment of Psalm 21, or 22, verse 1. His words "Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, in Luke 23:46 are foretold in Psalm 31, verse 5. His executioners did not break any of his bones, John 19 verse 33, just as Psalm 34, verse 20 predicted would happen. Zechariah 12:10 foretold of the piercing of his side with a spear, recorded then in John 19:34 again also outlined in Psalm 22 about the crucifixion, pinned down seven centuries before crucifixion was ever even introduced to society. He died the death the prophets predicted. Paul has gone right to the heart of the gospel here. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says that Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to To the the scriptures. It happened just as the scriptures had foretold. All the way through, Paul is showing that God's purposes are being fulfilled throughout history. Leading to this person, Jesus the Messiah. The Father's purposes are being fulfilled. His burial was fulfilled prophecy in verse 29 there. Victims of crucifixion were commonly thrown into mass graves. Yet after Jesus' death, they laid him in a tomb. A fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9, which says his grave was assigned with the wicked. And yet he was with a rich man at his death. One of the most exhilarating places to, to go is this garden. That's... that's right outside this outcropping a mountain that's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's called Calvary. And we, we, we sit there in this beautiful garden that some wealthy man would have owned, and we look at the tomb there that he would have had hewned out for his family, and it, it all everything around there fits exactly what the Old Testament and the New Testament says about Jesus' death and burial. Everything. And his resurrection, of course. And I have felt the presence of God in in many different ways and many different days in many different settings. But I can tell you there's something very unique about that ground. Maybe it's just because everybody there has like surrendered hearts. The last time we were there we had this big old group and we had some amplification problems and I'm like, ugh. And we're like, we just had some and, and there was another group next to us and they, they had amplification and we were just, all of these different churches around this outcropping of stone were just worshiping Jesus. Just worshiping him because he's alive. Yes. Okay. I feel like it's Easter morning right now. <laughs> Verse 30, but, but God raised him from the dead and he was seen for many days by those who came up With him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to these people. And we declare to you, glad tidings, that promise which was made to our fathers. It's the climax of his message, the resurrection. Paul would later write in Romans 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And as evidence for the resurrection, Paul cites the fact that for many days he appeared. In Acts 1, verses 1 through 8, there's the like 40 days. What Jesus said to the disciples and what his focus was on as far as the kingdom of heaven and all of that. 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul begins to talk about the gospel and whatnot, in verse 6, he, ta- he starts to talk about all the different people that saw him raised from the dead, even large groups, like 500 people at one time. Again, Paul says, we're just declaring to you, listen, don't miss this, God's plan for you. (laughs) This is to be said today, right? This is God's plan for us. God has fulfilled this for us in verse 33, the children, in that he has raised up Jesus. And it's also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So this whole thing about, my mind goes other places, but there are some movements out there that is is like, God has no son. And today as we're talking to our, our Jewish friends, they'll be like, ah, the whole son. Okay, this is a great little psalm to take them to in the second psalm, where God's like, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As we go up on the Temple Mount, and we walk around the Temple Mount, there is a mosque up there, and then there's a a monument to a man in the Islam faith by the name of Omar. And we know it as the Gold Mosque, the Golden Dome up on the Temple Mount. And around there in Arabic Arabic writing, it, it, it blasphemes God. That's what it does. It blasphemes God, and one of the things it says about God, and he has no son. The whole Islamic movement is like, no, 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 they can't have their Messiah, you see. So we're going to, in the 4th century or 5th century, whatever that was, we're going to put this up there when we're ruling and reigning, because we know that's where their temple was. And one day, Zechariah will have to go out and measure the, next, <clears throat> the future temple that... We, man, am I really going off? But... Measure the the future temple that will be built there one day, okay? And he's part of it, he's going to have to have a wall that blocks out the blasphemy against their God. Anyway, this this is just, let's bring it home. So, God has a son, amen? His name is Jesus, amen? He's our Savior and he's coming back for us. And he raised from the dead. Yeah, amen. He has spoken. Can you tell I miss Israel? I gotta go. Therefore, he he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow my holy one to see corruption. He's not gonna stay dead. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep. He's still buried. He saw corruption. He's dead. But the Messiah was raised from the dead. So these psalms weren't talking about David, talking about the Messiah. Paul supports his point from Scripture, showing them the promises of the resurrection. Therefore, in verse 38, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you, speaking of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified. So forgiven that it's just as if they haven't sinned. Made just in God's eyes. Those who Believe in Jesus and receive his forgiveness, his salvation from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And that's a powerful thing to say in a Jewish synagogue. Man's greatest need is met by God's greatest deed. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He died and rose again from the dead to prove all of that. That enables him to forgive you of your sins. That enables him to justify you. You're trying to find justification right standing in God's eyes by doing all these laws. That's work based. No, God sent his son to give you a pardon To deal with the penalty of sin and the forgiveness of sin. Complete pardon for all sins is something the law could never do. And so he placed that on his son. So, verse 40 Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So Paul's doing as I'm doing right now. He's he's closing his message. But he's closing it with a warning. Don't be so amazed at the work of salvation that you won't receive it. Verse 42, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them next week. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. These guys who were caught up in the law, they brought in the message of grace. Look at what God has done for you in giving you his son. The one who is the Messiah, the son of God that died on a cross for you and was buried and rose from the dead. They were like, continue in that. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Let me just say, this is what that was like. It it would be like, We were so touched by Jesus this morning that you all brought everybody you could possibly bring. You were so convincing with your your neighbors and your relatives and your friends that next week there was no room in this place. That's just the result of Paul preaching the word of God in a church. And it, it, it really sank into their hearts. Next Sabbath, verse 44, full house. But when, in verse 45, the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Hey, who are all these wet eyes? Who are all these people who want to hear about grace? Who are all these people who want to hear more from Paul and Barnabas? And who are all these people who want to hear of what they've been teaching? You see the the heart there? They're filled with envy. And what they do, they begin to contradict and blaspheme the things that Paul and Barnabas had taught. So Paul and Barnabas grew bold. I should say so. And said, listen, it was necessary, what did they say? That the word of God should be spoken to you first. That's what the word of God said, that, the, that, that, that salvation comes to the Jew first. It's like even the word of God said, like, like, man, you guys are fulfilling the very word of God by your very actions here. And so are we by bringing it to you first. But since you reject it, And judge yourselves. Understand this. If you're not saved here, or you're online and you're not a Christian, you're not saved, if you reject Jesus, reject the message of rejecting Jesus, you judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man will ever come to the Father but by me. It's your choice. It's your choice. But we're... We're going we're gonna to go with the people that, are, that God has really put on our heart, these Gentiles. We're going to turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us as well. In his word, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles. Well, you guys don't want to be that? Well, me and Barnabas and we who are being saved, we get it. We see our place in God's redemptive plan, and we're not turning our back on it. And if there's any Gentile in this room that's saved, we should thank God for the faithfulness of Paul. Finally, Paul and Barnabas, they bring it to a close. Verse 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as been, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This, this, this is a massive conversion thing going on. And, and, and who appoints us to eternal life, by the way? God does. God is sovereign and has you know, elected and chosen that we should be in Christ before the foundations of the earth. But as we see here, you can't miss it. He gives them a choice. This wasn't a forced thing. And there are sects of Christianity today that believe that, that, that like, there are certain per- people on the earth right now that it's got God, like it's limited atonement. God chose you to be saved, but God did not choose you to be saved. And I don't mean to point to this side of the congregation and just by my little Italians coming out of here. I keep my hands here. That's not biblical. There was a choice given to these people, all of these people, because God loves the whole world. God chose the whole world. From his eternal perspective, he knows who will choose him. You can argue that point. But as it relates to the love of God, God so loved the world. Not half of Calvary Lahabra on whatever this date is, but all of Calvary Lahabra on whatever this date is. That he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him. That's free will. I love Revelation 22:17, 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come and let us, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirst come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. And man, if that is you, we're going to pray in just a minute and I would just give you that encouragement. We would give you that encouragement in this room to give your life to Jesus this morning. Lastly, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region that the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women oh, you women, and chief men you chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, last week we encouraged our we were encouraged to let people know that there would be a very clear gospel presentation this week to tune in or to come. And in and, and, and these final moments, if you're here, you're online, and you're one of those that have listened to this message about Jesus, and you're not saved, but you would like to be saved, Romans 3.23, it it says we're we're all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, there is a wage of sin, that's death, separation from God. But there's the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if you want forgiveness of your sins, you want Jesus to come into your life and save you, you want eternal life in heaven with him. I'm going to say a very simple prayer. Repeat this out loud or in your heart, wherever you are at. But say it to him because he is alive and well and listening. Say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess to you right now that I need you to forgive me of my sin. I believe that you are God. I believe that you took on flesh. I believe that you died on the cross for me 2,000 years ago. I believe that you rose from the dead and I believe that you are able to save me right now. And so I give you my life and I receive your gift of salvation. Ask him to fill you with his spirit. Ask him to fill you with his love. And in your way, keep talking to him and... And thank him for saving you this morning. Lord, we pray for the church on planet Earth in 2022. Help us, Lord, to see you as absolute truth. Help us to see you as the one true living God. Help us to see your word as the inerrant, eternal, inspired word of God. Help us to preach it. Help us to line up our lives with it. Help us to walk with others through it. Help us to lead people to you. We pray for our church, Lord. As you're drawing us back together, would you knit us back together? For the common good, your story, your plan of redemption and our place in it here in this year, 2022. Oh, we pray this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon.